Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country as part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series produced in collaboration with the ACC Fellow in Training section. Each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from the program present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from the program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced, while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com slash cardionerds. Every little bit goes a long way. We're also so excited to be growing the platform by mentoring the next generation of cardionerds. We are establishing the Cardionerds Academy and are looking for residents and fellows to join as Cardionerds Fellows. Please see the link in the episode description to submit an application. Without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardionerds colleagues. Excuse me. Hey, uh, sorry, I don't mean to bother you, but would you mind pointing me towards Forest Park? I'm supposed to be meeting with Sam, Manny, and Adam to talk about WashU's Cardiology Fellowship. Oh, of course. And tell them hi for me. I'm actually their co-fellow, Rachita Navarra. Oh, no way. What a small world. You know, actually, I've, I've got some time uh, before I'm supposed to meet with them. Uh, my name is Amit. I'm a cardio nerd, and they were going to teach me some cardiology and also tell me all about why they love being at WashU. If you don't mind, I'd love to hear what brought you to this beautiful city. Oh, great. Well, yeah, that's awesome. I'm, I'm a third year here at WashU. I'll be going into the coolest and nerdiest specialty in cardiology, EP. Um, <laughs> but it's kind of a long story. Do you, do you have some time? You know, when it comes to cardiology and EP, I've got all the time in the world. <laughs> okay, great. Well, um, my, my love for EP has been very longstanding. I started off as a bioengineer in Boston, and I was working with pacemakers and stents and microfluidic chips. So when I got to med school, I learned that EP was literally debugging circuits in the heart. So intellectually, it was faith. And then I rotated with EP attendings and hearing them consent patients for ablation. I wanted to be that doctor who could cure arrhythmias using my own hands. And I was the lead singer of our med school band, The Pacemakers. So I was pretty much obligated to go into <laughs> I, I've got to say that's uh, at the same time, the nerdiest, but also the most brilliant and cool thing I've ever heard. You, you've <laughs> got to sing for us now before you go. <laughs> I don't know if we have enough Maybe. for that. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool. You've got all these great reasons for why you love EP and debugging circuits in the heart. Uh, how did you come to WashU? Yeah, well, I came to WashU from Stanford, where I did my internal medicine residency. And I got to work on novel AFib research with my mentor there, Sanjeev Narayan. And so as I was visiting places for a cardiology fellowship, I was looking for a program that would continue solid mentorship and innovative research in addition to fantastic clinical training. And WashU really left an impact on me. I interviewed with my now mentor, Philip Kuklich, and he truly inspired me with his work on non-invasive VT ablation. And this is one of the greatest innovations in our field, using radiation therapy that's been traditionally used to target tumors and instead directing it to ventricular scars to ablate VT in minutes without even entering the body. So mind-blowing. Um, and this had just come out in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I really think it's the future of EP. And when Dr. Kuklich invited me to work with him on advancing this new technology, that was just incredible. So I knew that coming to WashU, I would have an incredible mentor and supportive fellowship program, both for clinical interests and for breakthrough research. And another thing that stood out for me from the WashU interview day was there's a specific woman in cardiology mentoring group here called IMPACT, which was pretty unique along the interview trail. And again, it just reflects 
the supportive environment here. And I think one of the best parts is that everything I heard about on interview day has come true and more. Not only have I gotten excellent clinical training at one of the largest hospitals in the country, but I've gotten to present our research on non-invasive ablation at the biggest conferences each year. And the fellowship has supported me to take courses on running a research lab and even on medical device design at MIT. And speaking of new technologies, Dr. Kuklich introduced us to a innovation competition here at WashU that I entered with my co-fellows and developed a novel antiarrhythmic loading system that can start patients on antiarrhythmics safely at home. So one day I hope to apply these engineering principles to create new devices and innovations that transform the field of EP, and it all starts as a trainee. Wow, Rachida, I'm like so blown away right now. Clearly, you came to WashU with a purpose and a background, and you're making the most of it. And actually, if you'll entertain me for just a second, I remember when that paper came out about non-invasive VT ablation. And if we could nerd out for just a moment, could you remind me what they essentially used a CMR to identify the substrate for VT, like SCAR, and used essentially like stereotactic radio surgery to zap it? Is, is that, am I remembering correctly? Exactly. Great memory. And that's actually one of the, the areas that I'm going to be researching, which is trying to identify what is the most simple, single imaging modality that could be used to reliably target patients who are either getting catheter ablation for VT or non-invasive radio ablation. And it all starts with imaging and just trying to understand where is the substrate, where is the VT circuit, and how can we attack it even non-invasively. Yeah, you know, that's just so incredible. And it's just one example for why cardiology just as a whole is just so amazing. You know, the pace of discovery and innovation with bright minds like yourself, like putting together a background in engineering and a passion for scientific discovery and taking it back to the bedside, keeping the patient at the center really just uh, fills my heart with joy. And I'm so glad that people like you are working on things like this at places like WashU. Clearly, the mentorship you've had there is just opening so many doors. Absolutely. I, I feel so grateful to have had such strong mentorship throughout my training. And I think that's really one of the ways that WashU has really supported and nurtured my future career. And I think that's important for anyone going into fellowship to make sure that they can see themselves at that program and potentially can even identify a mentor that they can reach out to and connect with, because that really makes all the difference. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. That's really amazing. Oh, geez, look at the time. I, you know, I'm running a little late. I should run, but why don't you join us? We're just going to talk more cardiology and more WashU. I'd love for you to be there with us. Oh, that's so nice of you to invite me. I, I really wish I could, but I'm actually headed to meet my mentor, Dr. Kuklis, right now. I have him on speed dial, no big deal. <laughs> but I that's pretty cool. You, that's pretty cool. I hope you enjoy your virtual visit to WashU. It was fantastic getting to nerd out with you. Thank you. And uh, sorry, where was it? Is it this way or uh, over there? Or um, It's basically that big green area in front. Oh, okay. Right behind the big sign for Forest Park? That would be it. Yep, you got it. <laughs> Thanks, Rachita. Great to meet you. You too, Amit. Take care. It was so great bumping into Rachita and hearing all about WashU from her perspective. And thankfully, I found my way to Forest Park. This day is off to such a great start. And now we get to dive into it with Adam Lick, Manny Rivera-Maza, and Sam Lindner. Guys, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Hey, all. How's it going? My name's Adam. I'm a first-year fellow here at WashU. Coming up by way of New Orleans, where I did residency at LSU. Go Tigers! Been out here for four years now and enjoying every second of it so far. Hey, all. I'm Manny Rivera-Maza, also a second-year fellow here at WashU. Coming in from University of Miami, which is where I did my residency, and I stayed an extra year as a chief resident. Hi, everybody. I'm Sam Lindner. I'm a third-year fellow here at WashU, and I matched into the cardiology program here following my internal medicine residency at Duke, and I'm looking forward to next year where I'll be staying in the interventional cardiology training program here at this institution. So thanks for having me on board. Fantastic. Guys, welcome to the show. It's so awesome to have you on. You guys are all in St. Louis, and going along with the theme of this series, 
let's pretend that we're all sitting together in one of your favorite spots in the city. To start off the discussion, maybe tell us what are some places you like about the city, places you enjoy hanging out in? Where do you want to take us for this episode? Our hospital does abut Forest Park, which is a huge park. It's over 1,300 acres, and it's actually bigger than Central Park in New York. We could stroll over to the expansive green spaces, look upon the wonderful, beautiful exterior of Barnes Jewish Hospital, and then in a soothing field, discuss this very interesting case. So I think we'd be remiss, too, if if we didn't mention the great beer scene of St. Louis. Uh, (laughs) Do tell. Do tell. Yeah. (laughs) World famous Budweiser beer brewed here. So obviously there's the brewery here. There's the tour that we could take you through. We could discuss this case over a nice tall glass of ice cold Budweiser. But the local brewery scene too here is actually quite impressive. Anywhere that you go in the different neighborhoods of St. Louis, there's always seems to be some sort of local brewery right by the hospital. We have Urban Chestnut, which is a pretty good one. There's Four Hands down by the St. Louis Bush Stadium for the Cardinals. And then scattered throughout, there's Schlafly on the outskirts of the city, more so in St. Louis County. Anywhere you turn, you can get a pretty decent beer here that I'd put up against the rest of the country. All right, friends. I think I know who I'm going to call up when I visit St. Louis next time. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we found a beer garden. We're enjoying some drinks. We're drinking responsibly, standing six feet apart from each other. Adam, I hear you have an amazing case for us to talk about. I do. Why don't we go ahead and get started here? So I have a 71-year-old gentleman who's presenting with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. He's got a history of hypertension, bicuspid aortic valve with some mild stenosis, and a history of carpal tunnel syndrome. He showed about two weeks ago in clinic complaining of some worsening dyspnea on exertion at the time. Now, this is a gentleman who previously was in a pretty good normal state of health. He's an avid cycler at baseline and usually does a mile and a half around our world-famous Forest Park. But over the last couple of weeks or so, he's been noticing that it's been getting progressively more difficult cycling. At the last time that he tried to do it, he could only go about a half mile where he started to tire out and really needed a pause to catch his breath. So in the last few days before coming to clinic too, he's noticed some increased sensation of palpitations where he feels like every now and then his heart's been racing and skipping some beats. Since that time too, he's also complained of some swelling in his abdomen where he feels like It's a little bit more distended than usual and a little bit harder to touch. As for his medical history, we mentioned his bicuspid aortic valve, hypertension. He's had a history of carpal tunnel previously, and he's a history of chronic kidney disease with a baseline creatinine that runs about 1.5 to 1.7. He's had a previous appendectomy. He's had shoulder surgery back in the late 1960s. For his medicines, he's on Losartan, 100 milligrams daily, metoprolol XL, 25 milligrams daily. He's allergic to aspirin and allergic to NSAIDs. As far as his family history, he's a mother who had a history of aplastic anemia and a father who had a history of hypertension and lymphoma. And as for himself, he's never smoked, never used any chewing tobacco. He drinks about 11 drinks per week and then doesn't have any history of recreational drug use. So while you see him in clinic, initial vitals, he's got a heart rate of about 100 respiratory rate of 16, blood pressure of 145 over 80. He's afebrile with a temperature of 97.9 Fahrenheit, satting 95% on room air. He's 5'9 and weighs 76 kilograms. Exam, he's alert, oriented, not in any acute distress. His cardiac exam, he's tachycardic with an irregularly irregular beat. It's normal S1 and S2. There's no murmurs, no rubs, no gallops that could be appreciated. And his JVP was not elevated. His lungs are clear to auscultation. There's no adventitious lung sounds. His abdomen's soft, non-tender, and no organomegaly. You can't really palpate the liver edge or spleen edge. His extremities are warm and well-perfused. He has no lower extremity edema, and his neurological exam is mostly non-focal. So in clinic, you get some basic labs at that time. His BMP is remarkably normal, with an exception of a creatinine that's now up to 1.98 from that baseline. His calcium is normal, 9.3, mags 2.1. He's got a protein level of 6.3 with an albumin of 3.8. Liver enzymes were within normal limits. His H&H is normal at 14.8 and 45 with a normal white count and normal platelet count. And his coags are all normal as well too. 
So at that time, given his history, there's also an NT Pro BMP that's ordered that results at 2,900 picograms per milliliter and a troponin level that's elevated at 0.20 nanograms per milliliter. He also has a lactate that's within normal limits at that time. All right, great. So essentially, you've got a 71-year-old man with a history of controlled hypertension, bicuspid aortic valve, without significant valvulopathy, who's presenting with subacute but progressive shortness of breath, dyspnea exertion, abdominal swelling. His exam seems like it's pretty unremarkable apart from uh, baseline tachycardia, who's found to have kidney dysfunction and elevated cardiac biomarkers. And of course, while there, you're going to get an EKG, and I'll kick it over to Manny, who's going to tell you about it. Thanks, Adam. So as I'm looking at that EKG that this patient had, I'm definitely seeing some abnormalities. Some of those include atrial activity pretty consistent with typical atrial flutter. You're seeing negative F waves on the inferior leads, while you're seeing also positive F waves on V1. It seems like he is also in variable block. His blocks go from 3 to 1 to 2 to 1, and his rate is in the 150s, which is pretty consistent with the diagnosis of atrial flutter. And Adam, is this a diagnosis that we knew this patient had? So the flutter is brand new for him. Interesting. Yeah, thinking about progressive dyspnea, we think, all right, is this a pulmonary problem, a cardiac problem, a hematologic problem with anemia? And we have labs that show that he's not anemic. And we haven't looked at the lungs just yet, but with his elevated anti-proBNP, granted it's in the context of kidney dysfunction, which can elevate it, his mild proponemia and his new onset atrial flutter with RVR, I think our ears are definitely perked up for other red flags for a new cardiac ideology for his symptoms. And I'm glad you asked for evaluation of his lungs, because while you're at it, you're going to get a chest x-ray, and I'm going to kick it back to Manny again for a read. So as I'm looking at this chest x-ray, we can definitely see a stable and mild enlargement of the cardiac silhouette. I'm seeing a mildly tortuous aorta as well. However, the lung fields appear to be clear. There's no evidence of pneumonia, pleural effusions, or pneumothorax. What I'm going to say is correlate with clinical history as a good radiologist would say. <laughs> Love that. So it is quite interesting with the abdominal distension, the shortness of breath, the elevated cardiac biomarkers. On the chest x-ray, we're wondering, is there anything to point out a fluid overload state or baseline cardiac disease? Like you said, many his lungs don't look wet. There's no pleural effusions. And that may be the case for somebody with chronic heart failure because of hypertrophied lymphatics. This patient hasn't had heart failure for too long. It's unclear to me if it really is in a fluid overload state right now. Yeah, if I may add, the findings that we're seeing on the x-ray are pretty much consistent with what you would expect to see in a patient with bicuspic aortic valve. You're definitely seeing a mildly tortuous aorta, possibly hinting that this patient might have some sort of ascending aortic aneurysm, which is definitely something you might see in patients that have bicuspid valves. That's a great point. Great. Thanks, Manny. So with further workup as a good cardiologist, we're going to go ahead and get a transthoracic echo here. I'm going to invite Sam to come take a look at it and guide us through the interpretation of it. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. So I'll start up with the evaluation of the transthoracic echocardiogram images. Looking here, we'll start with a parasternal long axis view. And in this projection, you can see the RV here, it may be a little generous, maybe the upper limit of normal, just in the appearance on this projection. But I think what really jumps out at you is there is some pretty marked concentric LVH, at least just at first glance. We know that this patient has a history of a bicuspid aortic valve, but if you did not know that, look at this aortic valve. In this projection, you can see calcifications, restricted movement, and you can see this kind of diastolic doming appearance. As well, if you look here at the movement of the mitral valve, there's minimal thickening associated with that. Switching over to the next view, we can see a parasternal short axis view, which shows preserved systolic function all the way around without any regional wall motion abnormalities. And again, demonstrating a pretty marked thickening all around. It's pretty symmetric and there's severe concentric LVH. Moving on to the apical images in an apical four chamber view, we can see again, really marked thickening all the way around with his concentric LVH. Again, you can see some mild thickening of the valves, and both atria are enlarged in this projection. And I think it's probably not too much of a stretch to say that there could be some thickening associated with that intraatrial septum, although this is not the best projection or study to look at that. 
switching over to the next image, you can see apical three-chamber view and some mild mitral regurgitation. And then going back to that aortic valve, he has some mild aortic insufficiency, as well as some stenotic signal there on the color Doppler. On our next view goes back to focus on the aortic valve in a short axis projection. And you can again see that heavy calcification of the valve along with some eccentricity in the opening and demonstrating this appearance, which is consistent with a bicuspid valve. So again, looking at this next image, we can see some continuous waveform Doppler sampling from an apical view, focusing in on that aortic valve. It's clear to see that the patient is in an irregular rhythm, having variable block and what appears to be an underlying flutter. And he does have elevated gradients across that aortic valve. Peak velocity there is around 2.6 meters per second. And I think taking the VTI uh, across there, his mean gradient is about 15 with a peak of 27. Sam, so far, it's such a fantastic read of this echo. I'm about to start my echo rotations. I love the way you broke everything down. And essentially for this gentleman with a subacute onset, progressive dyspnea, and an elevated anti-pro BMP, so far we have found that, well, he's in an admirable rhythm and he's got severe concentric hypertrophy with thickened atrioventricular valves, possibly a thickened intraatrial septum. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was having the same thought. But his systolic function appears grossly well-preserved. His right-sided heart looks normal. It'd be nice to know a little bit about the diastolic function of this patient, but it's hard to assess with atrial fibrillation. And I'm just starting to think about why this patient would have hypertrophy and could it be linked to why this patient has symptoms in an elevated anti-pro-BMP? And so far, you can think, is it a hemodynamic compensatory hypertrophy from a chronically elevated afterload? He does have hypertension and his systolic blood pressure was in the 140s. And there is a degree of aortic stenosis, although it doesn't really get to the range where I would think it would cause severe LVH. And I think there's a red flag there that there's a LVH without a clear cause, unless Adam tells me he looked at his hypertension history and he has elevated blood pressures all the time that are very poorly under control. Actually, Ahmed, I was going to go over some additional findings from that as well. Here, there's a projection of the strain imaging. And while this is not maybe a classical pattern, for this, you can see there's relative apical sparing compared to the basal segments. And here on 3D imaging, you can again see his preserved overall systolic function. We additionally have some information on diastology for the tissue Doppler. Now, tissue Doppler looks at the velocities of the movements of the annulus of the valves that go longitudinally towards the apex of the heart. The systolic function and the diastolic function is not just about how well the heart squeezes overall in 3D. It's also about the movement, which is what this looks at. And you can see that the velocities here are overall low from what we would expect in a normal functioning heart. So overall, looking at these results, you have a patient who has marked concentric left ventricular hypertrophy. And comparing to the ECG findings, it seems to be out of proportion with that. We also have some diffuse thickening of the valves, although mild, and this strain imaging that shows abnormal strain that really spares the apex. So overall, this is not a normal image presented by the echoes. And taking this all in total, I think our suspicion is pretty high for an infiltrative process such as cardiac amyloid. That was a terrific way of putting together the whole clinical picture, Sam, and especially the echocardiogram. And I want to just dispel a myth for the listeners. I used to think as a resident that if you had amyloid, you had to have had low voltages on the EKG. I had a patient when I was back at Hopkins who presented with new onset heart failure, LVH, as well as a polyneuropathy whose EKG actually had high voltages. And despite that, she ended up getting a diagnosis of AL cardiac amyloidosis. Just learning from her case and doing some more reading, I learned that it's actually less than 50% of patients with diagnosed cardiac amyloid will actually have criteria for low voltage. And up to about 10% can actually have features of high voltages on EKG. I think what you said there was absolutely essential that even though he didn't meet criteria for low voltage on EKG, the degree of hypertrophy was out of proportion to the voltages that we did see in the EKG. There was a disconnect there. And so, important thing to keep in mind. What did we do next? All right. 
So to just recap, we have our 71-year-old gentleman who's coming in with what seems like worsening symptoms of heart failure here. Her suspicion for an infiltrative process here is, is pretty high. And I think what Sam was hinting at with some of the echo findings there too is, could something be going on with his aortic valve there? Could this be a process of atrial flutter that threw him into this? Or is this kind of just a heart failure preserved ejection fraction picture? Certainly a lot of it leads towards this infiltrative process, but I did want to throw out too that He's on the borderline for what you would think with a paradoxal low-flow, low-gradient aortic stenosis. I know he's not quite there from the valve area. I think we calculated about 1.5 square centimeters with an index of 0.75 square centimeters per meter square, and then like a Vmax of 2.2. But he did have a LVSVI of 30 with an EF that was still greater than 50. So I wanted to point out, too, that there's this overlap with infiltrative cardiomyopathies and this low-flow, low-gradient paradoxical aortic stenosis. And I think some of the literature is citing that there's about a 10 to 20% overlap between the two of those. And potentially, if you were to find something like a wild-type transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, it actually could be a poor prognosis even after TAVR, especially with the nt BNP hovering around 3,000. So jumping a little bit ahead there, but Manny, what were you thinking about management in terms of the acute setting with this presentation of new atrial flutter? So for our listeners, just wanted to recap what Adam just mentioned. That's quite important. When you're concerned about severe aortic stenosis, there are a couple of things that you need to look for on the echocardiogram. Your typical symptomatic severe high-grading AS is defined by an aortic maximal velocity of 4 millimeters per second or a mean gradient of 40 millimeters of mercury. The AVA is typically less than 1 centimeter square, or you can also calculate something that's called the aortic valve area index, which is basically just dividing the aortic valve area by the subject's body surface area. If that's less than 0.6, then you, you consider that to be significant. Now, when you think about our patient, when you have a failing left ventricle, either from diastolic dysfunction or from systolic dysfunction, you are not producing enough stroke volume, and therefore it might be difficult to interpret what your velocities will be and what your gradients will be. So I think that one of the important things to look for in this patient would be to see what the stroke volume index is and compare that to the aortic valve area that Sam just mentioned. So if you look back at the Doppler projections, his left ventricular stroke volume index was depressed. It was only 30 milliliters per meter squared. His aortic valve area index was reassuring at 0.75. So it's above that threshold that we generally use, 0.6. So overall, he does have some characteristics that are consistent with low flow, low gradient aortic stenosis. But it doesn't seem to be a slam dunk. That's the problem that's causing his issues here. That's awesome, guys. I'm loving this discussion and just putting together what Adam and Manny and Sam just said. In this patient, we have hypertrophy. We can't blame it on the aortic stenosis because it's probably not severe with a valve area that measures above one centimeter squared. He doesn't seem to have uncontrolled hypertension. But with the features of his echocardiogram, especially with the reduced global longitudinal strain and apical sparing, we're definitely concerned about infiltrative cardiomyopathies. And going a step further, the conversation about the overlap between low-flow, low-gradient AS and cardiac amyloid, I think is just such an important one to realize in general. It may not be applicable to this patient, but like Adam was saying, patients that are referred for TAVR, in that population, almost 15% of patients may have underlying cardiac amyloid, most commonly ATTR, just given the epidemiologic overlap with older age. And so this is just such an important pearl that I think is worth emphasizing. Thanks for going over that. For our patient, what was the next step? You were thinking about an infiltrative cardiac myopathy with the apical sparing or the cherry on top version. It's most associated with amyloidosis. We have a heightened clinical suspicion. How do we go about it? The next steps? I think first thing, Amit, is he was in this arrhythmia and we wanted to see if we could improve his symptoms by stabilizing that. He was admitted and he underwent a transesophageal echocardiogram to rule out a left atrial appendage thrombus. He had no issues with that procedure, and he was successfully cardioverted back to a sinus rhythm after he was anticoagulated therapeutically on a pixaban. But really, that didn't fix his symptoms, and he continued to have a dyspion exertion. We had this strong suspicion that he had an infiltrative process and were pretty suspicious that it was amyloid in nature. So we went ahead and did further workup 
an evaluation to see whether or not we could rule that in or rule that out. So talking about the diagnostic workup of these patients, we talked about his lab findings with the persistent troponinemia that was elevated despite no chest pain symptoms per se. And his exam was overall reassuring with regards to uvolemia when he was seen in clinic. There are other things that can point towards cardiac amyloid. We talked about the echo findings where he had marked LVH and biatrial enlargement and thickened valves as well as apical sparing of his strain pattern. Were he to get cardiac MRI imaging, those patients can show diffuse subendocardial and, and transmural enhancement on late gadolinium enhancement assessment. But really the gold standard for amyloid workup, it was considered to be an invasive study with endomyocardial biopsy. And you need multiple sites really to ensure that you get adequate sensitivity. But doing that study and then looking for Congo red staining would be the gold standard. But another thing that people commonly receive as a result of the workup is a nuclear study where we use radioactive tracers that are tropic to bone. And those patients can show increased uptake in the heart. And that study is called the technetium pyrophosphate scan, and it is a nuclear study that then circulates these isotopes that then are taken up and it's graded based on the intensity of projection of the radioisotope in the myocardium. And it's graded zero through three based on comparison to whatever the rib uptake is. And a significant amount of uptake in the myocardium is consistent with a diagnosis of cardiac amyloidosis. And so... The important thing to keep in mind here is that there's various causes of amyloidosis. There's transthyretin amyloidosis that can come as wild type was associated with age. There's genetic variants that are heritable and passed on through the family. And then there's also AL amyloid that comes from a monoclonal protein that then can cause fibrils to be deposited. So it's very important that you adequately assess people for other risk factors associated with other causes of amyloidosis. And you can't just go by the nuclear subtypes because what we find is that in patients who have positive pyrophosphate scans and TTR amyloid, about half of those people can also have monoclonal gammopathies when they get worked up further. And some people with AL amyloid, although we associate these technetium pyrophosphate scans with TTR type amyloid, the AL amyloid can cause uptake as well. It's important to assess those people and rule out AL amyloid. I think historically, that's been done with SPEP and UPEP, which is a protein electrophoresis study. But on their own, those can have inadequate sensitivity. And there are some plasma cell dyscrasias that only secrete light chains. So really, your workup for a monoclonal gammopathy or protein issue should also include serum and urine-free light chain assessments, as well as immunofixation in order to have adequate sensitivity. And this patient had electrophoresis done, and that was all reassuring, and there was no monoclonal peak on either of those assessments. There was also no immunofixation with that, and his serum light chains were all within normal limits. So I think we're pretty confident that he didn't have an underlying monoclonal protein issue that was at play. That was just such a beautiful rundown of cardiac amyloidosis and etiologies. So just to break it down... We think that this patient probably has cardiac amyloid based on his presentation, his EKG, his echocardiogram. We've built a clinical suspicion. And now we're going to go on the hunt for the abnormal protein, which is what deposits as beta-pleated sheets in end organs to cause injury. And the two that are most likely to be within the cardiac muscle are, as you said, ATTR cardiac amyloid or the transthyretin protein, also called prealbumin produced from the liver, or abnormal monoclonal AL light chains, which are produced by essentially a clonal population of plasma cells. And I love that you harped on the fact that whenever we're considering amyloidosis, we have to always look for the AL light chains. Dr. Paul Kremer, who did an episode with us in our early days, essentially said missing AL amyloid for amyloidosis is like missing a STEMI. And so that really hammered in the idea that you have to look for it. And I really want to reemphasize the point that an SPEP is not enough. We learned about SPEP for the step one, but Really, for ruling it out and being sensitive, you need those serum-free light chains and the immunofixation studies. Now, if those are negative, we can feel pretty sure that this patient probably doesn't have AL amyloidosis as a culprit. Going to his history, the history of carpal tunnel syndrome in a heart failure patient definitely should raise a red flag. Brett Sperry and Mazen Hanna did a study over here where they essentially took 98 patients who were going for carpal tunnel release and had 
the flex retinaculum center pathology to look for amyloid deposits and 10 out of the 98, uh, so essentially over 10% of the patients that they studied were positive for amyloid deposits. And these were mostly ATTR proteins. And I was actually speaking with Dr. Hanna today. He's like, we looked at just all comers, right? So not necessarily heart failure, all comers with men age 50 or older or women age 60 or older. But if we looked at men that were older than 60 with a history of heart failure, probably this would have been enriched to 30% of patients with a carpal tunnel released and, and probably even more if they had bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. Another important differentiating point is that AL tends to go to every tissue. The fact this patient has kidney disease might be part of the CRAP criteria for thinking about pathologic plasmic cell dyscrasia, but we know that his serologic workup is negative. The ATTR protein, depending on the variant hereditary versus wild type, tends to affect the heart muscle, the nerves, and these musculoskeletal tissues. So any patient with heart failure and carpal tunnel syndrome, heart failure and back pain from lumbar spinal stenosis because you get deposition in the ligamentum flavum, or heart failure with a biceps tendon rupture are all red flags. I think we probably have a high index of suspicion at this point for ATTR. Yeah, I agree. And you really have to take into context not only the symptoms that we're working up, but what are the other clinical characteristics of the patient. And really, it's this whole syndromic approach that increases the likelihood that's the diagnosis because you know, these things run together. That's awesome. So what did you guys do to see whether or not this patient has ATTR cardiac amyloid? So he did undergo a technetium pyrophosphate scan, which did show significant uptake consistent with the diagnosis of ATTR amyloid. And then he did undergo further evaluation. Hey, Adam, can you talk to us a little bit about those studies? Absolutely. And if I could chime in a little bit late to the game, but you were talking about the serum-free light chains for this study too. I just wanted to point out with this history of chronic kidney disease, it's essential to look at the ratio of kappa to lambda too. A lot of times in chronic kidney disease, filtration of the serum-free light chains is affected. And so you can have elevations in either your kappa or lambda, but looking at the ratio there, making sure it's still in the normal range or if it's elevated or decreased is an important thing to note. From Sam's next point, after he had the pyrophosphate scan, he actually ended up undergoing an endomyocardial biopsy that ended up showing Congo red positive amyloid deposits in it. He underwent further testing with liquid chromatography and tandem mesh spec to detect if there was any peptide abnormalities. And actually what we found was that it was consistent with transthyretin peptide. And then further looking to see if there's any abnormality within the actual transthyretin peptide, further testing did not show any amino acid sequence abnormality. You may ask, why is that important at this point? There's two distinct forms of transthyretin amyloidosis, both the hereditary as well as the wild type. Normally determined by age, you, know, you would normally expect uh, an older population with the wild type amyloidosis, but with the hereditary, there's actually a pretty wide range of presentation. We do expect it in older, but it can range anywhere from 30 to 80 years old. And important here because the mutation that you could find there could be potentially important for family members to know this type of genetic mutation and get in touch with a genetic counselor. So just from some of the things to point out, if it is a hereditary pattern, the TTR gene is located on chromosome 18. And in fact, there's over 130 mutations that have been described, anywhere from missense mutations, nonsense mutations, deletions. And they all seem to have this strong association with the anti-parallel beta-pleated sheet. So it's a cardio nerds podcast. I'm a bit of a biochemistry nerd. So with the tertiary and quaternary structure of the transthyretin protein, it's a tetramer formed from four distinct monomers. When you run into a mutation like this that can affect the beta-pleated sheet, you get potential for misfolding here. And with that misfolding, you can then expose to fibril formation where you get depositing in tissues such as the cardiac tissue. And why is that important here? Why is it important to hunt for these mutations if you're then thinking about treatment? There is some phenotype-genotype correlation. An example would be that you can get early neuropathy and then late cardiomyopathy with the wild-type transthyretin. But there are specific mutations, and the one that specifically comes to mind is the valine 122 isoleucine that's almost exclusively seen as a late 
onset cardiac involvement. And this is particularly important because about 3.4% of the African-American population in the United States potentially carries this allele, which you can imagine that's about 1.5 million people that could be potentially affected by this. This one's particularly nasty because we were talking earlier about preserved or reduced ejection fraction. And one of the characteristics with this specific mutation is that it can cause heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. So it's important to hunt for these, especially some of the other more frequent ones within the United States. There's a threonine, 60 to alanine mutation, and then there's a classic valine 30 to methionine mutation. Almost exclusively, there's about 14 transthyretin mutations that are cardiac predominant. And of those 14, eight that are actually exclusively cardiac in nature. So when we start thinking about family members affected, people affected by this, and then potential treatments, it's important to figure this out and decide what's the next steps to go from here. I'd also like to point out that even though we're talking about these specific phenotype-genotype correlations, as with everything that you see in medicine, uniform course isn't always universal. And what I mean there is that, like I mentioned, there could be an age range from 30 to 80 years old, you could get an early presentation of some of these symptoms. So what does that mean ultimately is that potentially there's a role for gene regulation here, there's a role for post-translational modifications, there's potentially even a role for environmental factors at play, which all could be potential targets of therapy. Adam, thank you so much for that. And it's just so interesting how the particular genotype essentially dictates, with some variability, but dictates the age of onset, the organ involvement, the natural history, prognosis. This really just such a fascinating thing to highlight. And then many, for some listeners, they may be wondering why we got a biopsy, because after the PYP scan, we probably had enough to know this patient had TTR amyloid. Absolutely. For this patient, there was a genetic study, and the result was pretty much as Adam mentioned it. And just going back to what you were saying and what Sam was saying as well, the specificity for a technician-labeled PYP scan is almost 100%, meaning that if you have a positive test, then that's pretty much diagnostic, and that confirms the diagnosis of ATTR amyloidosis. So guys, this is just such a terrific case. You build the clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis based on the presenting features, the blood work, the echocardiogram, the EKG, and using really all of those features together, including medical history with a carpal tunnel syndrome in the past. You build a clinical suspicion for cardiac amyloidosis. You went down the diagnostic pathway. You ruled out AL cardiac amyloid, which, again, is like missing a STEMI if you miss it. You ruled it out with looking at serum-free light chains and immunofixation. And then you got a PYP scan, which was essentially markedly positive with a grade three on the semi-quantitative scale, cinching the diagnosis given this clinical picture of TTR cardiac amyloid. You went another step to do the genetic analysis, and the patient was negative for one of the defined mutations for TTR. And so diagnose this patient as wild-type ATTR cardiac amyloidosis, probably with involvement of the carpal tunnel in the past. And he also had a biopsy that confirmed end organ deposition. The era of cardiac amyloid today is different from the era just a couple of years ago. How did you approach managing this patient? So in terms of treatment, we have access to two types of drugs. One of those, we refer to those as silencers, and the others are stabilizers. The stabilizer that's best known out there is Defamidis. A recent clinical trial, the ATTRACT trial, compared patients with ATTR that were on Tefamidis to patients on placebo and who were followed for about 30 months, showed that patients that were on Tefamidis were 30% less likely to die when compared to patients that were on the placebo arm. Subgroup analysis of this study also showed that there was no interaction between the type of ATTR amyloidosis and response to therapy. Yeah, so I think... That is a critical breakthrough in the literature because now all of a sudden we have strong evidence that shows benefit in these patients for a disease that previously people just said, this is a bad diagnosis and really there's nothing we can do to help these poor folks. But now we have a lot more options and other things coming down the pipeline. So I think the discussion of this evidence and treatment option is huge for these folks. We're really excited about this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's such a pivotal point. And ATTR, cardiac amyloid, and cardiac amyloid in general was the zebra diagnosis, right? It was a red hearing. It was the rare entity. But with the advent of non-invasive testing, 
with a PYP scan and other bone avid radio tracer scans, as well as the ability to effectively treat these patients with a mortality benefit, they really changed the epidemiology. Now we say, hey, 15% of hospitalized have PEF, maybe cardiac amyloid. 15% of the TAVR population, maybe cardiac amyloid. We have to look into it. This increase in public awareness within physicians, I think, has really been a market change in the epidemiology. Obviously, it was always there, but now we have a reason to look for it and a way to look for it that's less invasive. And Manny, correct me if I'm wrong. So in this study, they specifically looked at TTR amyloid cardiomyopathy. So tefamidus is really the only drug that's approved for TTR cardiomyopathy, whereas the gene silencers, as of right now at least, are approved for TTR polyneuropathy. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Amit. And I think you're referring to patisseran, which is one of the silencers that we use for amyloid, but is not FDA approved. The data was actually derived from another study that's called the Apollo trial. The Apollo trial basically looked into patients that had ATTR amyloidosis with a primarily polyneuropathy presentation. One of the exploratory endpoints that this study particularly did was whether there was a reduction in the anti-proBNP and also if there was a reduction in the LV mass in patients that had hypertrophic or diastolic cardiac dysfunction. There was actually some evidence that patisseran could help these patients. But then again, as you mentioned, patisseran is only approved for patients that have primarily a, a neuropathic presentation of ATTR. Wonderful. Hopefully we'll get patisseran and others in the pipeline for us cardiologists. That was just such an incredible case to talk about and really highlights the advances that we've had within the field just so recently. And I think this, it's really exciting to think about the advances that are still coming our way because right now, sure, we add famidus for a patient with cardiomyopathy, but is there an advent for, say, screening where it may be useful to screen patients that are more likely to have early stages of ATTR and potentially put them on therapy even before they develop end organ dysfunction? So I think that's a really interesting area. You guys are doing such tremendous things at WashU. Phenomenal case to talk about. You guys really went all the way. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the program. So I'd love to hear from you guys. What makes your heart flutter about training at WashU? I think there's a few things that I appreciate about our program. We have a variety of specialties that are represented here outside of just the traditional interventional cardiology and heart failure specialty. We have adult congenital exposure. I think that's present at a lot of different institutions, but I think that's a really fun part of the second year of a fellowship, as well as focus on cardioobstetrics and some women's health studies and the variety of specialty and approaches in cardiology that's available at this institution. I think another thing that is appreciated is there's this complementary approach between working with the attendings here, where it's really is teamwork in order to see these patients and have discussions about the diagnostic criteria and the clinical presentation. There's a lot of opportunities and flexibility to tailor your educational experience here. And in fact, a lot of, of our fellows go through two years where we take care of all of the COCATS requirements, and the third year can be tailored to any research or clinical focus that they want. So that's been a real great opportunity in training here at WashU. I would have to agree with Sam. The mentorship that you get at WashU is just phenomenal. Not only you get to work side by side with people that are doing great research, but they actually help you grow as a cardiologist. And I think that has been extremely important. Every time that I think about WashU, I always think that I made the right choice in coming here for fellowship. Both of you guys hit the nail on the head in terms of what brought me to this program. I had the unique experience of doing residency here and got to see the program a bit during those three years of time. And one of the things that has stood out then and continues to stand out here is just the way that you're treated and the way that your goals become other people's goals too. And from the early starts of being hooked up with a mentor, both on the research side of things, as well as just from a career standpoint, is a wonderful thing that they do here. As a first-year fellow, I've never felt like low man on the totem pole being on general consults and now echo rotation. Everyone's just been more than friendly, more than treating you as an equal. I was laughing earlier today because I was reading Echoes with Dr. Perez and just the enthusiasm that he has. And thank you for pre-reading about a patient and just that type of environment that it creates is well-received. I would also put a plug that with everything that's been going on in terms of equality, that 
the experience here at WashU has been that they've been at the forefront of that too. We have multiple faculty involved in research outcomes in our underrepresented health groups. We have research specifically looking at outcomes of cardiovascular disease in women. So from that standpoint, it's been a breath of fresh air to be a part of the fellowship program here. Another thing that's been a pleasant surprise is I had never really knew much about St. Louis prior to living here and being able to quickly integrate within the practice environment at WashU and then moving my family to St. Louis uh, quickly learned how many great opportunities there are for not just professional development within the fellowship program, but also it's been a great place to live and raise children and have a family. It's really been a great place both professionally in the fellowship training program and as a great place to live. So that's really been a great thing for me. I want to thank you so much for teaching us about a great case, a really interesting disease process. And really just telling us a little bit about the program in St. Louis. I hope when all this pandemic situation is over that I have an opportunity to visit y'all. Thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you again. And now for the ECPR comment by Dr. Katie Zhang, who is our Associate Program Director and a Cardio-Oncology Specialist. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in this episode of the CardioNerds podcast. As an associate program director for the Cardiology Fellowship Program and a cardio-oncologist here at WashU, it's been really exciting for me to see interest and expertise in cardiac amyloidosis grow among the rising Cardiology Fellowship classes. This is a very exciting time for our patients with cardiac amyloidosis since we now have effective therapies to treat the disease, as well as non-invasive testing options that can greatly facilitate the diagnostic process. One point mentioned earlier that I want to highlight again here is the wide variability in clinical presentation that you will encounter among patients with cardiac amyloidosis. Of course, there'll be the occasional patient that checks all your red flag findings, markedly increased LV walls, low voltage, bilateral carpal tunnel, AFib, heart failure. But really, the majority of the patients that we encounter in real life don't check all of these boxes. And when you look at all of these factors individually, there are a lot of patients out there that have LVH, AFib, or carpal tunnel. Even relative apical sparing of strain you'll find if you look carefully enough. Lesser known red flag findings that we've found to be very useful include orthostatic hypotension, intolerance of traditional heart failure medications, and unexplained neuropathy. To really improve detection of patients with cardiac amyloidosis, we need to have a high index of suspicion for really all patients that we see. The fellows who rotate with us on cardio-oncology know that once you have your eyes open, you really start to see amyloid everywhere. To give you a recent example, I was in the echo reading room a few weeks ago and opened up an echo on a post-op patient who was having non-sustained VT. And really, the echo was fairly nondescript, you know, pretty average except for a mildly reduced EF. Scrolling down, I got to the strain images and wow, there was just a really striking apical sparing pattern of strain. Um, I really hesitate to call or even suggest amyloid when there's really no other echo findings you know, no increased wall thickness or restrictive diastolic filling. So I opened up the patient's chart and right there, the first line of the neurosurgery, HMP, said history of bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome admitted for lumbar laminectomy. Needless to say, this patient got an immediate cardio-oncology consult, a technetium pyrophosphate scan, and was diagnosed with TTR cardiac amyloidosis. The second teaching point I want to highlight from this really excellent case presentation is appropriate use of the technetium pyrophosphate scan. First, it's really critical to exclude AL when ordering this test since AL is the primary cause of false positive technetium scans. If a monoclonal protein is detected by SPEP or UPEP with immunofixation or by an abnormal free light chain ratio, then the technetium scan is no longer specific for TTR cardiac amyloidosis and a biopsy is needed. Secondly, the technetium scan must be performed with SPECT imaging in order to avoid 
false positives due to blood pooling of tracer in the LV cavity. And finally, I think it's really important to remember that the technetium scan as a diagnostic test has really only been validated in highly selected patients who were evaluated at specialty amyloidosis centers around the world. So as we start to use this test in a wider patient population, potentially with a lower pretest probability for TTR, cardiac amyloidosis, it's likely that the sensitivity and specificity of the test will change. So then this brings us to the question of the role of cardiac biopsy. In general, I think a grade 2 or 3 technetium pyrophosphate scan combined with the absence of a monoclonal protein, a clinical history, and cardiac imaging that are consistent with TTR, that's really sufficient to make the diagnosis. Frequently, however, things are not so clear-cut and a biopsy is needed to exclude AL. In the presence of a monoclonal protein, our practice here at WashU is to refer patients for biopsy of an involved organ, which usually ends up being the heart. A recent patient of ours had a classic amyloid echo along with multiple myeloma and a V122I mutation in the transthyroidin gene. So in, this was a great case of how cardiac biopsy with mass spectrometry was really critical to accurately type the amyloid protein. In terms of future directions for the amyloid sphere, I think we still need to do a better job of identifying patients with cardiac amyloidosis early enough in their disease course for our therapies to be effective. I think that targeting amyloid education to our medicine and cardiology trainees is probably the highest yield way to do this. And that's why I'm really proud that we're taking part in this Cardio Nerds podcast to help to disseminate this information. I'm also really proud that all of our fellows in our general cardiology fellowship program do a cardio-oncology rotation, which provides exposure to the inpatient and outpatient care of cardiac amyloidosis patients, as well as exposure to our multidisciplinary amyloid meetings, where we really go over the intricacies and the diagnosis and management of these complex patients. For those fellows out there that are interested in research, there's a lot of really exciting research going on right now in the amyloid world. A lot of it is aimed at developing or at improving our ability to detect cardiac amyloidosis earlier. Some of these, you know, diagnostic scores are echo-based, others are more EMR-based. I think no matter the modality, we need to make sure that these studies include patients from different medical centers, different countries, and also at different stages of disease so that we can optimize the utility of these diagnostic scores once we try to apply them to the general population in real life. There's also an important need for novel therapeutics that are effective in more advanced stages of disease. Right now, all of the therapies that we have for AL and TTR are aimed at reducing production of the amyloidogenic protein. In the case of AL, it's chemo. In the case of TTR, it's tefamidus, inotersin, and patisseran all of which ultimately reduce misfolding of the TTR protein. But for those patients who present in more advanced heart failure, we're not making an impact on the amyloid deposits that are already present. And so really we need to develop novel strategies to adequately treat those patients when they present. So thank you again for inviting me to comment on this really well-presented podcast. And here at WashU, we really look forward to learning more with cardio nerds in the future. I'd like to give Dr. Cates, who's our fellowship program director, an opportunity to have some comments and some messages for the applicants. Hi, I'm Andy Cates, program director for the Cardiology Fellowship Training Program at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. It is great to be with you here today to discuss our fellowship program. Before I start, though, I want to congratulate our fellows on doing a fantastic job in presenting the case that you just heard. Honestly, I think Adam, Manny, and Sam did a phenomenal job, and it was great to hear from Marshida at the beginning, too, discussing her interests. Just fantastic job all around. And I also want to congratulate Amit and Dan for the job they've done putting together this podcast series. Truly great to hear from all these fellowship programs. What I'm here today to talk to you about, though, is our fellowship program. I want to share with you a couple different aspects of our program that I hope you'll come to understand really truly represents the fantastic opportunities that we have here for our fellowship program at Washington University. Let me first start by telling you about our training mission. 
Our mission is to develop national leaders in cardiovascular medicine by promoting diversity and excellence in research, teaching, patient care, and service. Now, to do that and to achieve that mission, we've really put together what I think is a fairly unique program that provides fellows the opportunity to experience the breadth of cardiovascular medicine and learning clinical care, but then also give them the opportunity to differentiate through one of two different pathways, our investigator pathway and our clinical pathway. All of our fellows receive outstanding clinical training during the course of their first two years. And beyond that, some fellows choose to pursue our investigator pathway through which they receive mentored research experience, typically over two or three years on our T32 training grant, where they develop expertise in any of a number of different areas, including basic science, translational, clinical outcomes research, and healthcare policy, with the ultimate goal of developing as independent investigators and achieving career development awards. Many of our fellows pursue one of our clinical pathways where during their third year and beyond, they have the opportunity to develop an area of cardiovascular medicine that really defines them and who they are through a clinical niche, be it in cardio-oncology, cardio-obstetrics, clinician educator, clinical epidemiology, invasive cardiology, cardiovascular imaging, and many fellows beyond that pursue opportunities in advanced clinical training as well. Inherent with all these, though, is the expectation of undertaking meaningful research as they develop their area of expertise and their focus. I think our fellows benefit well from these varieties of experiences. I also want to highlight a few other aspects of our fellowship program that I think are truly important to our fellows and why they choose to come to WashU. The first is mentorship. You heard from Katie Zhang a few minutes ago as she provided the expert commentary on this patient with cardiac amyloid. Katie is, in addition to being our cardio-oncology faculty member, she's also our APD for recruitment. Katie has done a phenomenal job, and through the mentorship she received with Dan Lenahan from cardio-oncology, truly is emerging as a thought leader in the area of cardiac amyloid. And she's just done a wonderful job, and it's so great to see her develop in that area. You heard from Rashida Navarra also at the very beginning. Rashida joined us from Stanford to develop her interest related to EP and do research with Phil Kukulich, who's led in the field of non-invasive VT ablation. And seeing her develop that interest truly has been wonderful to see and highlights some of the unique aspects of our fellowship program. We're committed to training our fellows. Each one develops a unique area of cardiology that's important to him or her as they emerge and help us achieve our mission of training leaders in cardiovascular medicine. Beyond that, the collaborative aspect of our program with our fellows working together as they did on this clinical presentation, but far more than that with the research component for our fellows working with faculty within cardiology, but then across the divisions and the departments here at WashU truly highlights the aspects of our program that truly are important to us. Fellows that come here truly, I think, embrace the way that we all treat and respect each other. We work together. It's a wonderful program from that perspective also. And I think our fellows really sense that and get that also. One of the great aspects of our fellowship program is our commitment to clinician well-being. And through that, we've created our fellowship wellness committee. This committee, which is led by our fellows, provide support for fellows through various activities that they plan. They actually have a budget where they work together to set up various activities for fellows to be engaged, to meet outside of work, and really help support each other. We understand how important that is, well, now more than ever, in providing support for all of our fellows. I thank all of you for joining us and listening. Please visit us on our website. There's a lot of information there to share with you highlights the experience of our fellows, what makes them unique, what makes our program unique. And please feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions. Thank you and have a great day. Wow, what an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all of the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for The Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. We thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karen Desai. 
If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. And I was the lead singer of our med school band, The Pacemakers, so I was pretty much obligated to go into <laughs> I, I've got to say that's uh, at the same time the nerdiest, but also the most brilliant and cool thing I've ever heard. You, you've got to sing for us now before you go. <laughs> I don't know if we have enough Maybe. for that. <laughs> we